I'm Shelby Schlangbergen, and this is Living Over Losing, unfiltered and unrestrained. Hello and welcome back. I'm super excited to have Valerie Callen on the show. She is an anti-diet dietitian and an intuitive eating coach. She's an RD and has her MS, and she helps women to stop obsessing over food and start loving their bodies. I'm so happy to have you, Valerie. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to talk to you. So anti-diet dietitian is just such a great, (laughs) such a great phrase. Before we get started into all of that, the anti-diet dietitian, what that means, can we just start with your story and kind of like how you got to this place, how you evolved? You know, I know anti-diets, intuitive eating, it's not necessarily the, the exact, the, you know, the traditional path in nutrition and in school. So just kind of, yeah, kind of give us like a little background about how you discovered this. Um, I discovered it mainly through my own journey with food. So mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. It is not the traditional path. It is not what we're taught in schools. Um, I pretty much had to do a little bit of digging on my own and a lot of trial and error. And then I, I came into it. But I'll backtrack and I guess I'll start from the beginning. I was born in Ukraine. So formerly the USSR. So my family and I came here to the United States when I was four. And it was just three of us, me and my parents, and both of them worked. So my grandmother, who started living with us a few years after that, made all of the food in the house. So the food culture at home was a pretty normal one, I would say. A lot of home-cooked Russian meals, not a ton of eating out. You know, my, my parents were both working all day long. Um, we didn't have a ton of money growing up. So, you know, a lot of the meals were at home. And my parents had a really good, I would say, intuitive relationship to food and eating. Um, you know, we would have dessert occasionally. I think we always had stuff like ice cream in the house. There were never any rules around it. My parents were not dieters by any means. However, That being said, the culture in my household was very fat phobic. So both of my parents were into fitness. And I think genetically, they're both predisposed to thinness. So for them, it was never a struggle to stay in a thin body. But at the same time, there was a fear of possibly ever getting to a place of being in a larger body. Mm -hmm. So while I was growing up, while there wasn't this emphasis on food is a bad thing, there was definitely an emphasis on being overweight, being fat is the worst thing. And when I hit puberty and I started to develop, Mm -hmm. there were comments made that were definitely, I would say, pivotal to where my disordered eating relationship started. Um, Things like referencing other overweight family members and a lot of, um, how do I put this? You know, just a lot of language, a lot of negative language. Mm -hmm. I don't want to end up like that. And for a young, impressionable person, this became my narrative in my head. You know, like, oh, I can't end up like that. That thing, staying this way is a good thing. And now how do I stay this way? So I wouldn't say that I even made the connection to food until probably late into my high school life. I think for the early part of my puberty, it was more of what my parents did exercising. So I started 
kind of obsessively exercising um, and it was really unhealthy. And yet nobody in my household said anything because it was viewed as a, a healthy, normal behavior. And, and then, like I said, a couple years went by and I started to make the connection of, oh, food can also be manipulated to, you know, to manipulate my body, basically, if food can be used in that way. And my, my mom actually worked in fashion. So we had a lot of fashion magazines lying around the house. Mm. Um, you know, aside from just being a human in our diet culture and being bombarded with these messages left and right from everywhere, it was also just very present in many ways in my home. So looking at that growing up in the late 90s, 2000s, um, at that point, reality TV was just starting to become a thing. So, you know, that wasn't helpful either. As you know, so much of that is very fake and plastic and just influential to a young person in somebody who's forming their identity to think, oh, this is what I have to be like. Right. So fast forward to college, um, living on my own for the first time, having all of those pressures of being a good student, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Um, there was a lot of pressure for my family to succeed because I was an only child of immigrant parents. So I basically had two choices that were given to me by my parents, and that was pre-law or pre-med, and I chose pre-law. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I chose pre-law. So undergrad, I was um, majoring in psychology, minoring in pre-law, and I was the pre-law club president. I was very heavily on that track. And at the same time as when my, um, my own eating kind of took a turn for the worse, there was a lot of control. There was a lot of control that I was trying to, uh, that I was trying to control in my life at that point, trying to kind of juggle all these balls in the air and take care of myself. And the way that I knew to do that was at that point to kind of really hyper control my food. So that's where a lot of the restrictive eating for me really started to become prominent. And yet at the same time, it was very much a cry for help for somebody, my, my family to realize, hey, something's going on. I think maybe, you know, she, something's wrong. Maybe she needs help. But because dieting and this lifestyle is so normative in our culture, again, nothing was said. You know, I think at one point I remember my, my mom, I would see my parents every three weeks or so because I was living um, in another state for college, um, just one state over. So every three weeks, four weeks, I would, I would drive home or they would come to see me. And I remember at one point my mom did say, she's like, you, you look like you've lost a lot of weight. But that was it. It was just a comment and it was no, and I'm concerned. And are you okay? Are you eating enough? Mm -hmm. And so... So that almost reinforced for me that like, oh, well, you know, maybe this is okay. Yeah. Or maybe it's not bad enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Maybe it's not bad enough. Um, so I kind of struggled on my own for a while because nobody seemed to be really noticing what was going on. And it's so hard for college students. And even I, I guess I would say teenagers who, whose parents really um, aren't 
home a lot, or, you know, teenagers tend to be seeking that autonomy and they're out on their own a lot, that a lot of parents really don't notice that these behaviors are happening. You know, a lot of times these things can fly under the radar for years. Yeah. Without anyone really noticing unless there's a serious medical complication. Right. And a lot of it's secret too. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of shame. Like mm-hmm. I recall not want, like part of me, I think secretly wanted somebody to know, but another part of me was very ashamed that I was doing this to myself and it was almost like everyone else had this perception of me as this A student, pre-law, and, you know, knew what she was doing with her body. So it seemed to me on the outside, but if they only knew what was really going on, oh my gosh, the shame, you know, it's like I could never fully reveal myself to anyone because the whole facade that I built crumble, like, oh, she's not perfect after all. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I can identify with that too. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to like maintain all of these, these juggling balls in the air. And then I, I graduated and at that point really started to debate if I wanted to do law school after all. Um, I, somewhere along the, the way realized that I was doing this mainly for my parents and wasn't sure if I actually wanted it for myself. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting um, a part-time job at a big four accounting firm in New York City. And it was a great, it was a great job. It started off as a temp job. And then I ended up applying for a full-time position there. And this job was in the learning and development field, which is like glorified event planning for accountants. Mm-hmm. So we were constantly going to conferences. There was a lot of travel. We were staying in hotels a lot. And Due to the nature of the conferences, there was food around 24-7, it seemed. There were yeah. giant tables worth of snacks all day long for the conference participants to go and eat during their breaks. All of the meals were served, you know, and you're getting served at a hotel, so the portions are, are quite large. And all of a sudden, I was confronted with food all the time. And that's when my eating kind of morphed into this restrict binge cycle. So my... my Disordered eating has had many iterations, and this is kind of the second one. So it became very much of either trying desperately to eat as little as possible during the day, and then, you know, in my hotel room at night, ordering a giant meal to, you know, eating everything I could during the week. And then weekends were super restrictive um, to trying to eat what I could during the day and then exercising compulsively in my hotel room. And when I was home, off of the conference, it was much the same thing, you know, trying really hard to be quote unquote good during the week, which meant listening to whatever diet of the moment that I found in whatever magazine. And then, you know, by the time I would get home, it was a binge fest or weekends were just a disaster. And it was always the last supper mentality. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. So like every... Every night actually would be last supper for me because I distinctly remember going to bed. My last thought would be about food and how I did that day. And it was usually bad and I could do better the next day. And then I waking up the next day, my first thought would be food and how I can be good that day. And this cycle went on for years. Yes, that's so <laughs> true. Oh my God, you're literally speaking my life. That's so, yeah, that's very, very true and common and it, and then it becomes like a way of life and you don't even know. I remember like, I didn't even think I was sick. I just thought that, oh, I'm not like normal people. Like I don't eat like normal people. I, you know, it's just so, it's so such a mind game. Yeah, absolutely. And it really becomes this prison that you're in, this 
self-imposed, but you don't realize that it's self-imposed. You kind of, it develops so insidiously and over time, and then it just becomes your life. Like you said, um, you don't even realize it. So that went on for, like I said, years, probably two or three years until I really started to think I need to do something about this because it's a problem. And, um, and again, so much shame. Like I, I never thought to talk to anyone about it. None of my friends knew, you know, from the outside genetically, again, I've, I've, I'm, I've always been in a thin body. 100% have thin privilege. And, and yet I was always a battle internally to try to stay in my body or make my body smaller than it was, or just, there was also obviously a lot of um, low self-esteem at that point. You know, I think that I didn't really realize until later on when I started actually looking at the eating behavior and how it was related to just overall how I felt about myself. Mm -hmm. Presenting this perfect image to the world was the only way that I thought that people would love me and appreciate me and approve of me. So yeah, I I remember... Hold on, sorry, can you hear that? Yeah, so that basically lasted for several years, probably two or three years. And um, there was definitely a a lot of shame there to where I certainly never felt like I could disclose this to anybody. I didn't feel like I could share with my parents, with my friends, because from the outside, it really seemed like I had everything together. You know, I had this job. I had a, a thin body uh, that was accepted by society standards. And I don't think anybody would have ever thought that there was anything else going on with my food, that I was, you know, eating cookies out of the trash can, which happened at that point. You know, I would come home, be in the middle of a binge, tell myself, just throw it away. You don't want to eat all this. And then five minutes later, run back and dig food out of the trash. I mean, that's pretty much my lowest point that I can recall. And, and yet nobody knew about it because it was so shameful to me. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of this was also tied into my self-worth and this I only discovered way later after really looking at it more in depth, but, you know, keeping this perfect image was the only way that at that time I knew how to get love and acceptance from people and, how I knew to attract romantic partners, you know, was always by maintaining this perfect image. And that went even beyond food. That went as far as never leaving the house without makeup on, always wearing a push-up bra, always having my hair done, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of always maintaining this perfect image because God forbid anybody saw what it was really like to be me. Nobody would want to have anything to do with me. And that was the fear. And so you know, this control often happens when our self-worth is not quite there. And um, I wish I would have sought out professional help at that point, but I did not. You know, another thing that culturally was an issue is that in Russian culture, nobody that I knew in my family, in my extended family, ever went to be a therapist. That was just not something that was ever talked about. So, you know, at one point, I think I did mention to my parents something about maybe seeing a therapist. And I was basically told like, well, you have a whole bachelor's degree in psychology. Like, you know what you're doing. Like, you can just, if you have a problem, just like figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) 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 And, and so I was like, okay, so therapy is not approved either. All right. Well, what can I do to figure it out? (laughs) Yeah. So I started looking into stuff. And so now I'm in my mid-20s. 
still dealing with this horrible diet binge cycle on repeat. And at least I'm now trying to look into it. So first I found Maria Hornbacher's book, Wasted, which, mm. yeah, was fascinating. And although can often be very triggering to people too, because it's very explicit. Yeah, I actually read that in the beginning of my recovery. And I had to, I was, I had to have my husband throw it away because it was really good. And I think I could read it now. Yeah. But in the beginning of recovery, I was like, this is too triggering. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then I like from that started looking more into eating and nutrition. And I remember a, and a guy that I was dating at the time, he had a female roommate and she was doing the, the, um, Institute of Integrative Nutrition training. And I remember she got all of her materials. I don't know if you're familiar with IIN. Yes, I am. Well, she got all of these like beautiful flashy materials in the mail when she started her program and like these glossy books full of nutrition information. And oh my gosh, did like that diet part of my brain go off? Yes. <laughs> Where I was like, oh my gosh, this is the solution. If yes. I can figure out the perfect way to eat, then I can control my body. I can stop binging. Like I can really have this perfect diet. And I started looking into nutrition training. So I looked at IIN and then, of course, the high achiever in me was like, well, I don't want to just do that. If I'm going to go for it, I want my master's. Mm. <laughs> so, again, like the perfectionist in me was like, let me see where's the highest place I can take that. Yeah, where's the most extreme we can go? <laughs> so I started looking into master's programs and ended up applying and I got into a master's program. For nutrition. And all of a sudden, my eating disorder morphed once more into orthorexia. Mm-hmm. So third iteration, now I became just obsessed. For those of your listeners who don't know what orthorexia is, it's basically an unhealthy preoccupation or obsession with healthy eating or clean eating um, it's almost like the fear of anything that's, that you see as bad, like any bad food, right? Good and bad foods are, it's almost like a religion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very dogmatic. Yeah. yeah. So, so going into this nutrition degree now, there's this added layer of pressure of, well, now you're going to be a professional. So you have to be perfect in what you eat. This is going to be your career. And that was so unhealthy for my eating disorder because it was like, um, such an easy way to disguise the problem by now being a professional. And so now, even if anyone were to ever comment on like, oh, I see you're only eating XYZ foods and like you're afraid to eat regular pizza. Well, I'm a nutritionist. Like I'm a nutritionist in training. I can't eat that stuff. That's not healthy. You know, I need a role model for my future clients. Right. And it's almost like, because I, I also majored in nutrition and I, th- I thought the same thing, but I also felt that other people kind of expected that. Like if I went out with my friends, they would be like, oh yeah, she's the nutritionist just eating a salad. So I had to be like the nutritionist eating a salad. And even now when I, you know, I let go of all that, I still feel like some people look at me and they're like, you're eating that? Like what? what? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. It was so accepted. It, it- did another interview where I almost called it like, what did I say? It was something like, you know, the orthorexia club, because like so many of my fellow, my peers in school had the same mentality and it was very rigid around food, very black and white, very good versus bad. And like, that's what we're taught in school. 
you know, intuitive eating was not on the radar. And I went to NYU, which you would think as this big name, they would be a little more up on some of the newer ways to look at nutrition and a more inclusive way. But no, it was still very much these foods are good. This way of eating is good. This other way of eating is bad. Right. And so going through my, my education, still kind of messing around with, you know, very rigid eating. And um, I would say a light bulb moment actually came over an argument that my, my now partner um, and I had over pizza, which is an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, one night um, we were deciding what to eat. And he's like, oh, I just, I think I'm in the mood for a pie, like a regular, you know, New York slice, like New York pizza pie. And at that time, I was only allowing myself to eat, you know, the brick oven quality ingredients from nice restaurant, nice like pizza restaurants, um, right. that type of pizza, but not not a corner slice, not you know just a right. regular slice of pizza. And and so we were like went back and forth, and I was like, well, I can't eat that pizza. And he was like, it's the same thing. And we went back and forth arguing about pizza, and. Luckily, I had a light bulb moment where I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. Like, it is the same thing. Why am I freaking out right now over pizza? Like, what is going on in my brain that I can have one type of pizza, but I can't have another type of pizza? And this is craziness. And that was a real turning point for me where I had to really look at what I was doing. And I think part of me, was able to convince myself that I had gotten over my eating habits, my, my disordered eating habits, you know, and to convince myself that I was doing this for the right reasons and that I didn't have a problem with food anymore. I was just eating the healthiest, best food I could for my body. And I think in that moment I was able to, it was really like an awakening of no, you still very much have a problem with control and controlling your food and yeah. And fear fear and being so strict and rigid with yourself and it's affecting your life. You know, now you're having arguments on a Friday night about pizza. Right. So at that point is when I really started looking at things differently and again, seeking out on my own, still resistant to actually seeing somebody about it, but started seeking out other answers to this problem. And that's when I finally stumbled upon intuitive eating. And um, I remember Health at Every Size, the book came later. It was first intuitive eating. It was um, mindfulness. You know, it was different ways to, it was eating disorder recovery stuff that I really started looking more into. Um, And then came a period of intense trial and error with intuitive eating where you know letting go of all those rules is terrifying at the same time very liberating but terrifying so you know there were days where it would feel completely chaotic and i just have to keep telling myself that you know what it might be chaotic right now but it certainly feels better than feeling like you're in a cage and you're trapped Yes, that's exactly that is so that's exactly how I felt too because I was terrified to start introducing these foods that I hadn't eaten in years or I hadn't let myself eat in, you know, unless it was in like a secret binge or something. 
um, to start eating these foods again. Like, and pizza was a big thing for me too. Like regular pizza, not cauliflower crust pizza. Regular pizza was a huge fear food. And just bringing that back in was, was terrifying, but I don't know. But I, yeah, I, I told myself the same thing. I was like, you know, this is hard, but at least I felt like I was like, at least I'm feeling something because when I'm doing, when I'm just kind of like numbing everything through binging and restricting, I don't feel anything. So this is better to me than feeling nothing. Yeah. And I, that's how I just kind of kept going. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think even now, I think if I didn't have who was so normal around food, like he just has a totally what you would say, just a normal intuitive eating relationship from the time he was a kid uh, till, till now, like he eats whatever's around. He doesn't think about food. Like, you know, it's just such a normal relationship. And, you know, he started doing the majority of the shopping and I kind of let him take that role. And I took a step back even, and as the nutritionist in the relationship, that was a difficult pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. And, but because I let him kind of take over and he started buying things that I never allowed in the house before. I mean, potato chips and cookies and ice cream and all this stuff that I was avoiding previously, or I would only buy the, the healthy versions of Mm-hmm. You know, and like I said, sometimes it was, you know, me still eating way more than I felt, you know, comfortable with, meaning I wouldn't call it a binge like I used to binge, but it was definitely feeling uncomfortably full. But at least now I was able to sit with it and be like, okay, well, you, you know, you made that choice. You ate, you know, 10 Oreos. Maybe that wasn't like, the best decision because now you're feeling kind of sick, but at least you let yourself do it. And next time you can maybe have, you know, six or eight or four and see how you feel about it. And, you know, do it the whole intuitive eating way and just kind of mm-hmm. your body and be more of a non-judgmental, curious observer of what's going on rather than coming in with all of these external rules and judgments and criticisms. Yeah. Trial and error. Definitely. Yeah. So this is so interesting because it seems, so did you mostly get into nutrition? It seems like, because, you know, kind of like because of the disorder, Mm -hmm. it seemed, you know, something like that would be, I know for me, I thought, oh, well, perfect. I'm already consumed with this 24 seven. So now I can make it my job. Um, So how did you make the switch like with your profession into um, intuitive eating and yeah. How did you, yeah. how did you get into that? So I, at some point along the way, I realized that A, the only way I could ethically practice now knowing what I knew about diets not working because they never worked for me, about that restrictive mentality not working. Um, And even all the research I was reading through at that point, learning about health at every size and all the research on the difficulty in actually maintaining weight loss through restrictive means, I could no longer ethically work in the traditional way that we are taught to work, which is very much prescribe a diet. Somebody comes in, you give them a piece of paper with a meal plan, you monitor their, um, their goals are always weight-based goals. You know, any achievements are always weight-based. And I was like, I do not feel comfortable morally or ethically practicing that way. So I knew at that point that whatever business I would start would be aligned with non-diet, intuitive eating, and weight-inclusive 
which means, you know, I treat behaviors. I do not treat weight as an issue. Um, and then I started getting into, um, eating disorders kind of by accident. I remember there was, um, when I was in grad school, there was an internship opportunity with this great dietitian. Um, and she was actually the president of the New York chapter of IADEP, which is the International Association for Eating Disorders Professionals. And I initially wanted to do the internship with her because she has a thriving private practice. And I was like, great, this is what I want to do. Like, I knew early on that I wanted to work one-on-one with people. I knew I didn't want want to work in a hospital. Clinical wasn't really my thing. Mm -hmm. And I liked forming relationships with people and talking to people and really getting to the nitty gritty of their problems and working on them for a long period of time. So I initially went in thinking like, oh, cool, I can shadow this woman and learn everything. But she had several of us interns because she's a badass. And she put me in charge mainly of helping her with her presidential duties for this eating disorder association. At that point, I wasn't really thinking I was going to do eating disorders. Like I knew I wanted to do kind of, you know, non-diet stuff, but eating disorders is its own animal and wasn't quite sure I wanted to take that on. But by nature of how things just worked out, I ended up doing so much work for this eating disorder professional organization that so many people went to all of the trainings that they put on as a student. And then a board member position opened up and I was asked if I wanted to be on the board. And I said, yes, at that point, you know, I was in it. And that's kind of how I got into eating disorders. So, um, yeah, it, I ended up getting a job after my internship straight out of the gate at another private practice, um, another dietitian, Jennifer McGurk, who specializes in eating disorders, and shadowed her for the summer, and then had you know regular supervision with her, and still have, of course, regular supervision, which is so important when you're treating eating disorders, is to have a supervisor who's a specialist, because... And and also to work with the full treatment team, which Mm -hmm. is a therapist and a psychiatrist and a medical doctor, because eating disorders are so complicated and tricky. So I kind of learned as I went along through a lot of supervision, um, a lot of trainings and teaching myself a lot of books because we only had one class at NYU on eating disorders and it was a summer elective which you can you can tell by that like that they did not care about that course whatsoever right like a short summer elective and that was it so you know yeah. Aside, yeah so aside from my own experiences a lot of it was self-taught through webinars, in-person, educational events, books, um, and supervision, lots of supervision. But, you know, I'm, I'm so passionate about it because I've been through it. And because I believe that full recovery is absolutely possible. And I know some clinicians would disagree with me on that. And everyone has kind of their own way of looking at things. But um, I, I also work per diem with Montanito. Oh, yes. Which is an eating disorder um, treatment facility. Um, They have centers all over the country. And it was started by Carolyn Costin, who has recovered herself. And you think? I I read her book during recovery. Yeah. Eight Keys to Recovering from an Eating Disorder. Yeah. Yeah, I'll link that in the notes. 
Yeah. So good. So, so, so good. So that book was also pivotal for me in, in my training as to be a better clinician. And, um, cause I only discovered it after I had already, you know, been doing intuitive eating and stuff, but yeah, I, I'm of that philosophy. Carolyn's philosophy of full recovery is possible. And, um, yeah, which is why, again, I'm so passionate about the work that I do. And I'm so happy that events led me to this place to where I can work knowing that I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem, because I feel like so much of traditional nutrition um, profession is kind of part of the problem. Yeah. And I, I, I hate saying that. And I feel, you know, I, I know <laughs> saying it, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, I was actually thinking about this earlier because I was thinking about school and, um, cause I, you know, I, as, like I said, I went to school for nutrition as well and I got my undergrad in it, but I remember like our labs would be like taking our BMI, taking mm-hmm. our, taking our weight, measuring each other, counting our calories for a week. And that was our project. Like <laughs> our project was seeing how good quote unquote good we ate for the week. And you know, if we're getting too much calories, not enough calories, if yeah. we're not having enough fiber, if we, you know, whatever. And that's just like so mind blowing to me now because I'm like, that is diet culture. Like that is so problematic. Yeah. And I, and I know that it's like, I don't want to like trash the, you know, like the nutrition, nutrition, um, departments, but I just, I feel like it's just, this is like such an unknown new thing, like intuitive eating and anti-diet dietitians. And so that's why I'm just so interested to talk to you because how do you, like, how do clients find you? If, you know, cause you're kind of, well, you're very different from the typical dietitian that would, re- you know, would, would prescribe calories and you need to lose this much weight and I'm going to weigh you every week. Um, so how do you like, do you find it hard to, to be so different in separating yourself? And um, yeah, how does that, how does that work? Yeah. So um, the majority of my clients are eating disorder clients, which means that they do have a full treatment team. They're oftentimes stepping down from an eating disorder treatment facility. So a lot of my clients do come from referrals from therapists or from um, psychiatrists. So from the treatment team or from the centers themselves, the facilities themselves, because, you know, over time, you work with so many of these facilities. Unfortunately, eating disorders are a growing problem. And there's a lot of eating disorder facilities that mm-hmm. help um, these people who are struggling with their disorder. So um, that's probably the main way that clients find me is through treatment teams and because they need outpatient providers to continue working on their recovery. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's awesome because I know sometimes when, when you're getting a treatment team together, if you don't have a dietitian like yourself and you kind of get a traditional dietitian, that can be very conflicting with your therapy and your recovery. And it can be really confusing to be put on a specific plan with specific calories. And it's just kind of like counting it all again and just doing the same thing over. So that's really awesome. And I'm glad that, that there are people like you out there (laughs) that are helping. Thanks. Yeah, no, you're so right. It can be so re-triggering for somebody to be trying desperately to block out or put blinders on all of the diet noise that they have to deal with just by living in our culture. 
And then on top of that, to be sent to a professional who's going to be kind of telling you the same stuff, maybe a little bit better than like the self magazine article. Right. (laughs) Still, you know, pretty much telling you, well, these foods you should probably avoid or don't have too much of this. And it's like, wait, so it is okay to be restrictive just in this other way. You know, it might be. It could be. Yeah. So that's interesting. How do you, so let's say if you have someone that has a full-blown eating disorder and I know it's very common for um, people with eating disorders to have, they're not really in touch with their hunger, fullness cues. So intuitive eating is kind of an elusive term in the beginning of recovery. Um, It can be, but I mean, for some people and some people can pick it up right away, but how, like, what are the first steps for, for you to, to take someone that is struggling to get them like to this down the the road of intuitive eating? Yeah, sure. Good question. So most of my eating disorder clients who are just coming to me newly in their recovery process, I do not do intuitive eating with them. Um, Mm -hmm. That comes way later down the road. Um, What I do with them is usually a very flexible meal plan. And I like to use this analogy um, that I actually, I'm going to give credit to Christy Harrison, who runs the Food Psych Podcast, which yes. is just an amazing wealth of information. But she once talked about, even in the beginning of intuitive eating, it's not a free-for-all. It's usually, it starts with some kind of a plan, whether it's a structured eating plan. But the way that she described it is, let's say you broke your arm. And somebody asked you to throw a baseball and you're like, I can't throw a baseball. My arm hurts too much. So that acts, that arm analogy is kind of like your metabolism that's messed up, your hunger fullness cues that are completely messed up from years of restricting or binging. Um, And if you were to put a cast on that arm, the cast is like the meal plan. So I'm probably completely butchering her, the beautiful way that she said it. (laughs) But basically the cast on your broken arm is like the meal plan in the beginning stages of learning how to have a healthier relationship with food. It, it gives you some structure. It gives you some time for your body to heal itself internally for your digestive system to heal itself. Because a lot of clients that come to me, especially if they were restrictors, their digestive system is very, very much um, working slowly or they're not able to process things or there's a lot of GI discomfort because it's the use it or lose it. Um, what's the word? It's, it's like use it or lose it with the gut. Like if, you, if you're not using it properly or you're not actually putting food into it. Yeah, it's not functioning properly. Right, exactly. So putting people on a more structured meal plan in terms of it's going to be three meals, two to three snacks. It's going to be every three to four hours. It's going to contain these types of foods. So usually I work off of the plate method. So it's going to have, you know, a certain amount, and this is what's individualized for each person, but you know, it's going to have some carb, protein, fat, and, you know, some veg and, and that's a rough guideline. So, you know, I do a lot of educating on it doesn't have to be perfect. That's completely, um, you know, a working estimate of what it should look like. And that's what we do in sessions is come up with actual real ideas 
that's individualized to each person that meets kind of the guidelines of what they're supposed to have. And also teaching people what's an appropriate meal, because a lot of times when you're wrapped up in diet culture, you get a lot of messages about food portions and what's appropriate that is so off base and such a small amount of food that you really don't know what's appropriate anymore. Right. So, um, I feel like I'm kind of going off on a tangent. Let me know if anybody- no, no, <laughs> no. It's totally, it's totally true, and it's and it's so complicated because it's not like this one, this one prescription fits all eating disorders. They're just, it's not like that, and that's why it's good to definitely work with someone, a professional, to help you to kind of figure out what works for you. Yeah, so, I mean, for people with actual eating disorders, a meal plan is actually the best solution for at least three to six months, depending on the severity of the person's eating disorder and their recovery. I mean, everyone's so different, which is why it's so good to see a professional and get an individualized approach rather than somebody just handing you something. But I think intuitive eating comes way later once you've made Mm -hmm. the fact that you can actually eat regularly, regular meals, regular snacks throughout the day and be okay with that in appropriate portions. And then And even for people who are binging, that's immensely helpful to kind of have a guide of, you know, this is what I'm going to follow so that things don't feel quite so chaotic because there's a lot of other stuff that you're dealing with when you're in recovery that the last thing you want to even think about sometimes is making complicated food decisions because there will be a time and place for that when you're further along in your recovery that you can actually do those things. So um, after they're comfortable eating regular meals and they're able to do it and you know there's no relapse and they feel comfortable being more flexible with food then we start introducing um more of the concepts of intuitive eating granted i feel like you know within even a meal plan there's of course intuitive eating going on in the sense that i'm not telling them what to eat i'm completely giving them the freedom to make those decisions in the moment, but within the guideline, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. The so kind of this is a guideline to, and especially for binging, um, I struggled with binging and it was just because of restricting mostly. Um, so yeah, just kind of having like a guide to know the right amount of food that you should be eating during the day to kind of reframe your body function so that you don't want to binge at night. I mean, and that doesn't happen right away, obviously, but yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, you have to have some kind of structure to get there. It's not just like snap your fingers. Oh, I'm an intuitive eater now. Um, oh I wish it was, but <laughs> it's not. And yeah, it's definitely down the road, but it is, I mean, it's, it is an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, I think as it relates to even binging, in my opinion, there's two main reasons that people binge. One is physiological reasons and the other is psychological or emotional reasons. Mm-hmm. So you're either binging because you're not eating enough during the day and you reach a point where your body is just going to rebel against you. Because, you know, if you look at the way that human beings are designed, we are designed to eat. And there's so many complex mechanisms within us, like our, you know, hunger hormones and, you know, and our fullness hormones too tell us that we should be eating and that prompt us to eat. So when we're not actually doing that, there's only so long that we can have so-called willpower to 
avoid eating before our body's going to rebel and send us even more stronger signals that like, nope, you're going to eat. And you're probably now going to eat a lot more because now we're super, super hungry. So physiological reasons is one. And then the second reason is emotional or psychological reasons. And the way that the meal plan helps with this is that if you're at least following a structured way of eating in the sense that you're having all your meals, we can rule out that it's a physiological reason most of the time, unless your meal is somehow inadequate or you know you should be having an extra snack that you're not paying attention to your hunger and you're avoiding for some reason. But we can rule that out. And once we rule that out, that it's not coming from physiological reasons, it makes it so much easier to then tackle the emotional reason. So if you're eating all day long and you're still feeling like you're binging every night, what's going on there is probably an emotional thing, you know? So are you binging because of all the various emotional reasons, loneliness, sadness, um, tiredness, um, what, uh, boredom, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a miss. I mean, even for me, when I was started to recover, I didn't really think that there was so many layers to what creates and what feeds an eating disorder. But yeah, I mean, it can be a way to deal with anxiety or trauma or depression, even self-worth, um, having low Mm self-worth. It just, it's crazy how many layers there are and how much it's really not just about the food. And Mm -hmm. I thought when I first started recovery that the only, you know, I was like, well, no, I I don't have any like traumatic events. And I think I just want to be skinny, but it was like, well, why? And then you kind of like figure out, you kind of figure out those underlying layers. That's definitely a huge part of recovery along with the, the food side of it. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I too thought the whole thing of, well, it's just about my appearance, but no, it's never just about your appearance. It's about your appearance as a vehicle to getting you what you really want, which I think for most of us is love and acceptance is what we want in this world is for people to appreciate us and respect us. And I think in our society, it's really easy to view thinness or having the perfect diet as a means of getting those things. And it seems like it's something we can so easily control, which right. So not the case, but it, it seems like the way that you hear about dieting in our society, like it's so easy to do, which I think is the alert for so many people and why so many people get trapped in that diet cycle of continuing to try this one and that one, even though they're clearly not even working for that person. But it's that allure of like, well, diet culture is telling me that it should work. So it must be me. I must be doing something wrong. And it looks like it's everyone else is able to do it. Why am I not able to do it? Let me try again. Let me try. Yeah. Yeah, It's so much, it is so much of an external need, like an external validation for an internal reason. I think Mm -hmm. Um, that, yeah, it's almost like, and it's, it's hard too, because there's so many, there's so many layers to it, but there's praise for, you know, being on a diet. Oh, that's so good. You're so, you're so, um, you know, you can restrict so well, you, you have such good self-control. Um, you, you know, you lost a couple pounds, you look great. And so it's like, it just keeps fueling the fire into like, okay, well, this is what I have to do to be worthy. And, but I think you realize eventually once you keep doing it for so long and 
just up and down, up and down that you don't feel more worthy <laughs> from that. And never, no matter how you change your body, if you can change your body, what you do to your body, it never makes you feel fulfilled. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can distinctly remember, and even now, sometimes I'll look back at old photos. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I'll look back at old photos where I can distinctly remember that I hated myself when I first saw that photo. And I I knew that I was at that point miserable, very into my eating disorder. And now looking at it years, many, many years later, I can see that like physically I'm in a smaller body than I am now. But whoa, mentally was I completely unhappy, not confident, like fighting myself, not feeling good enough. And it really makes you think just, just how much it really has so little to do about the actual physical body that you're in and so much to do with what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think it's common. I don't know if you're as like a sensitive person, but it is kind of seems to be common in sensitive people that they're just looking for acceptance and being liked and for some reason, I think, like you said, it's so alluring to take on the, to take on a diet because it's everywhere. It's in every magazine. It's in every commercial. It's on TV. It's literally everywhere. So you see it as an easy way to get acceptance. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with the rise of social media, so I'm in my 30s now, and I feel like I kind of escaped some of the stuff that's going on now with social media and the rise of these influencers and... I know you mentioned that you have quite quite a big following too of you know influencers who also are kind of um, hmm, putting out an image of eating a certain way that makes it seem like it's easy and attainable too. And I know that if I was a teenager living in today's society, I would have a really difficult time navigating all of that. And I would look at some of these influencers. And be like, wow, like this person just looks like they have it all together. And, you know, they're posting pictures of their smoothie bowls. And like, that's what I should be doing because I want that life, you know? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. And I mean, I, like, that was a pivotal point for me too, because I was 100% one of those influencers. And I think in the same way, I was looking for validation through social media. It was just another outlet to get people to be like, wow, your, you know, your body is great and you're so controlled. And I would post pictures of my like broccoli, quinoa salad. And then, but of course I would never post photos of me like digging into a bag of Cheetos at midnight because I'm starving. Like, of course I would never post that because it would ruin the image, but that's what it was. Like it was a fake image. I was so unhappy. And I was, and it seemed like the more unhappy I was, the more I would try to like convince, like try to look happy on Instagram so that people would be like, oh yeah, like, you know, her life's great. And finally I was just like, this is bullshit. Like I am not happy. And I don't, like, I remember thinking like, I'll be damned if I'm the reason that someone else is struggling. Like I'm struggling because they look at me and think my life is perfect because it's not. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is so, first of all, like, Kudos to you because that is so brave to be able to admit what you just admitted and to kind of change your whole brand around. So I, I just, I don't know. (laughs) Thank you. I just felt like so unauthentic and it's definitely still huge on social media. Um, it's, 
it's, I mean, diet culture is diet culture. It's a, it's a big part of our society and it's an easy way for people to feel better about themselves, even though it really makes you feel terrible about yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but I do think after I stepped out of that sort of bubble, um, on social media and I kind of like came into the health at every size, um, you know, just body acceptance, intuitive eating, there is a lot of that too, which is awesome. So that's something that I think is like one of the first steps too, is kind of like changing your environment. If you're only following people on Instagram that are only showing new diets, new workouts every single day, like, you know, you, you, there is another world out there that is so much, just so much better for you. I mean, for your, for your mind. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, I think it's so important to surround yourself with people who are doing and acting in ways that you aspire to be like, which, which, you know, actually that's tricky what I just said, because I think for a lot of people, they do aspire to be like the, the, thin- the perfect, yeah, it's quote unquote, perfect yeah. eater, exerciser has the perfect life, but it, I have seen, um, I have seen a lot of like fitness models and fitness professionals kind of come onto the other side and be like, look, that was me, but I wasn't happy at all. And so to kind of hear someone else say that, that you thought had everything together and you were doing everything wrong, but really they felt the same way as you did. It's, it's refreshing. And I know you mentioned earlier, um, thin privilege. And that's something that when I first started recovering, I kind of felt guilty about because I also have a naturally thinner frame. So I felt like, how can I be preaching recovery and preaching about all these things when people are just going to look at me and not believe anything I'm saying, because they're still going to think that I'm doing all these, you know, these things to myself that I'm not, that I'm trying to not do anymore. So that was hard for me too, because in another way, I kind of looked at like, how are people going to look at how are people going to look at this they're they're not going to believe me they're not going to care they're going to get upset because you know because i am in a thinner body so i just yeah. think in general like that's why i love health at every size because it doesn't we shouldn't be glorifying any body type like everyone is different and no matter what you're never going to have you're just never going to have people that look the same or you're never going to have one body type that's better than the other. And this is healthy. This isn't healthy. It just needs to be, you know, you are what you are and you're proud of it. And that's really hard, but it's just crazy. (laughs) I really appreciate that the health at every size framework allows the focus to be on health behaviors versus about the way you look. Right. Cause I, I think for so long, health behaviors were not accessible to those in larger bodies. And I was reading something recently about how, um, I think it was an article that Rebecca Scritchfield wrote, and it was on how people in larger bodies actually avoid the gym and avoid exercise because of all the stigma. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they feel like they're being stared at. They feel like they're being laughed at or mocked for even being there. And I think the health at every size framework helps encourage people that no matter what size body you're in, you don't have to lose weight first to treat your body the right way, to eat the foods that you want. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You know, you can be in this body, whatever body you're in and be kind to yourself and, you know, 
accept yourself and treat yourself the right way and talk to yourself the right way. You don't have to change your body first to then start to love yourself. And I think that's such a beautiful philosophy and applies, like you said, to all of us in every type of body. Yeah. To people in larger bodies who for so long have just been marginalized and still are in our society Mm -hmm. every day, but now there's a voice for them. And I think that's so amazing. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think, I mean, as I started transferring over into, into this, you know, more acceptance society, part of society, I think it's just, there is hope. Like there's a lot of movement out there and um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's hope <laughs> and there's more and more people that seem to be kind of waking up to this. Um, cause I just feel like after so long of doing the same things or hurting yourself over and over and over, you realize nothing really even changes except that you're just getting more unhappy. Mm-hmm. So, but hopefully someday we can get to the point where it doesn't take years of suffering to figure that out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're doing the work that you're doing and you know reaching so many people with your social media and your podcast I think it's fantastic so thank you yeah and I thank you because I really appreciate you too kind of going against the grain on the um on the dietetic side I mean that's amazing it's it's totally off the path and it's that's like exactly what we need (laughs) yeah so that's awesome more of us more of us coming up the ranks Yes, definitely. It's, it's definitely, like I said, it seems like, it seems to me like it's becoming more of a common theme because I think we're just finally realizing like these things don't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's hopeful. <laughs> All right. Well, we are getting towards the end of the hour. Um, I had literally so many other things I could ask you about, but, <laughs> but we, I just feel like I could keep going forever, but, um, Unfortunately, we are at the end of the hour. So I did want to ask you, for anyone listening, how um, how anyone can get a hold of you, how they can keep in touch with you. You know, your social media. Um, how can how can we stay in contact with you? Yeah. So um, social media is great. My I'm on Instagram as Nourished Mind Body, and my website is just my name ValerieCallen.com. Valerie with a Y. Alan with two L's. I'm sure it'll be linked somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. And from there you can find my, my email address. Um, if anyone has any questions, feel free to email me. I'm pretty accessible or send me a note on, on Instagram. And yeah. And you said, you said you're in New York, right? Are you still in New York? Yep. I'm in New York city. Mm-hmm. Do you take um, clients online or only in person? I do. I take virtual clients as well. Okay, cool. So they could find that on your website. Awesome. Yeah, that makes it so much easier too. Because for me, right now I'm living in Roanoke, Virginia, which is not, <laughs> which is not near anything, not any, near any big city. So it's really cool to have like that virtual mm-hmm. connection for people that don't live in the cities that have access to them. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much again. Like I said, it was so good talking to you. I seriously, everything you said, I was just like sitting over here like, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was so good to have you and so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. 